WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. This episode contains discussions about eating disorders that could be disturbing for some listeners. Many people don't know that genes are very important in determining who develops an eating disorder. With over 50% variability in risk due to genetic factors, the environment matters too, though. We can interact with genes to amplify biological risks. To tell us more about this, we're here with Megan McHale. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us today. May you please tell us about yourself and your research? Hi, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm a fourth year PhD student in the clinical psychology program at MSU, and my research in particular is focused on eating disorders and how genetic risk factors and biological risk factors interact with the environment to increase risk for those disorders. It's nice to meet you, Megan, and thanks for joining us. It sounds a lot like that similar argument, the whole nature versus nurture one where we don't know whether it's nature versus nurture that's actually influencing the behaviors that people have. When it comes to eating disorders, how are you able to distinguish whether one is causing more of an effect than the other? Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually use a design that's a little bit unintuitive. So we actually use twins to help us understand genetic and environmental contributions to eating disorders. So let me explain how that works. When you have twins, there's two different kinds of twins that can exist. You can have identical twins, which are twins that share 100% of their DNA. So for identical twins, you have one egg that's fertilized by one sperm. And then as that's developing in utero, it'll split and form kind of two developing babies, basically. So those will grow up to have 100% of the same genes, and that's why they're called identical. But there's also fraternal twins. So fraternal twins happen when you have two eggs that are fertilized by two separate sperm. And they will also grow up to be twins, but they only share about 50% of their genes on average, which is kind of the same as any two siblings. So basically what we do is we get a whole bunch of identical and fraternal twins, and we see whether identical twins are more similar to each other than fraternal twins are identical twins share more of their DNA, if we see that identical twins are more similar than fraternal twins, we know that DNA and those genes are really important for the trait that we're looking at. So that's actually like a big part of how we disentangle it. For clarification purposes, is your study on identical twins, fraternal twins, or both? So both the identical and the fraternal twins are important. So we're kind of comparing how similar the identical twins are to each other and how similar the fraternal twins are to each other. Now, another sort of important thing about twins is that they share a lot of their environment. So they grow up in the same family. And because of that, a lot of their environmental influences are the same. So that will also make twins more similar to each other, but it's really comparing those identical twins to the fraternal twins that can help us determine those genetic influences. So again, because identical twins share more of their DNA, if they're more similar to each other than fraternal twins are similar to each other, that suggests that there are pretty strong genetic influences on the trait that we're looking at. So that's the case for eating disorders and also for a lot of other mental health conditions. This reminds me a lot of the NASA study that was performed with Scott Kelly, who was an astronaut that went up into space for a year, and then they observed what were the physiological differences that could be seen between both him and his twin brother. 
Yeah, that's a really great observation. And that gets at kind of that environmental piece of it. So at the beginning of life, we see that identical twins are really similar because they share 100% of their DNA. But as anyone who knows twins knows, they're not going to be totally identical throughout their life. And that's because in addition to genes and those shared family environmental influences, everyone also has unique environmental influences that can influence their health and their mental health. So for some people, that might be like having different friend groups or mentors or in kind of the example that you mentioned, even something as different as one twin going into outer space. So when twins have had different environmental experiences, that can shape them to be different too. And that's really helpful for helping us learn about how the environment is important, even with people who have really similar or the same genetic background. Now, I don't know the statistics here or anything, but I'm pretty sure it's not that easy to find twins for your study. How many people were in your study and how did you recruit them? Yeah, that's a really good point because twins are pretty common, but you can't just find them anywhere. So my study was pretty large. It included about 10,000 twins altogether, and it was from a database that my advisor, Kelly Klump, has been gathering for many years. So my advisor has a relationship with Michigan so that we can get birth records and contact twin pairs. And then they kind of enter into our twin registry, which is a big twin registry at Michigan State that has thousands of twin pairs of all ages. So for my study in particular, I was interested in those twins who are still growing up, who are between ages like 8 and 18 in that adolescent period where we often see that eating disorders start. But it's actually a really great resource because we have information for twins all throughout the lifespan. So other researchers have looked at things like physical health conditions, heart disease, things like that as well, using the same data. Based on what you said, I would have not guessed that there were that many twins here in the state of Michigan, actually. I always thought birthing of twins was a lot rarer. As we know, Michigan's a pretty diverse state, and in fact, they say that Dearborn, Michigan has the highest concentration of Muslim Americans here in the United States. What was the demographics of the population that you studied when it came to understanding how eating disorders were being managed by both the environment and genetics? Yeah, so our sample was pretty diverse, and it was actually representative of the state of Michigan. That's really important because a lot of previous research that has looked at eating disorders hasn't looked at what we call a population-based sample. So when you think about different samples, you can have people who are just coming into a clinic for treatment, for example, and you can do research with those folks. But often those people may not be totally representative of the population of people who are experiencing things like eating disorders. Because access to care isn't great for people who may not have financial resources or may not have the information to know to go seek out specialized mental health care. So in a population-based sample, we try to get a sample that's representative of the whole population. So for our sample in Michigan, it was a, a fairly diverse sample with people from all kinds of backgrounds. So different ethnicities, white, African-American, um, Hispanic as well. So that allowed us to kind of see whether these associations were similar from people from a lot of different backgrounds. And our study also looked at, in particular, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, which is a question that hasn't been studied a lot in eating disorders. So in our sample, we had people who were pretty advantaged and pretty well off, which is the group that's been studied the most. 
And then we also had a fair number of people who were coming from more disadvantaged parts of Michigan as well. So that was one of the sort of key questions that we were hoping to address in the study, how that variable of socioeconomic disadvantage might relate to disordered eating. I'm really happy to hear that your population was so diverse and that you had so many people in it as well. I was worried that you wouldn't be able to recruit that many people because, like I said, I wasn't sure how common twins were. Your study is focusing on genetics as well as environment. Are you looking at any other factors of the environment other than their demographics and their age? And also, how are you relating it to genetics? For example, are you maybe getting a swab of saliva or maybe blood or something like that? Yeah, so for this study in particular, we were really interested in environmental factors that, as I mentioned, had to do with kind of the socioeconomic status or background of the people in our sample. So what we know is that when people are experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage, it can be really stressful for them in a variety of ways. So it can be stressful in the sense of psychologically stressful, but also stressful on the body as people may not be able to get the food they need or experience food insecurity. Another thing that we know is that stress in general is just a really big risk factor and environmental risk factor for eating disorders. So in this research, the things that we measured had to do with aspects of the environment. So we measured aspects of the immediate financial environment for people's families, like what the education status and income was of their parents, but also elements of the environment in the neighborhood surrounding them. So we had a measure that's called the Area Deprivation Index, and it looks at measures of socioeconomic disadvantage within your neighborhood or your census tract, which is just sort of a formal way of saying the area around where you live. So this would look at all different kinds of indicators like the average home value there, the average income, et cetera, that try to get at what kind of resources are available in your neighborhood and then what might not be there that could kind of normally help a young person grow and develop. So those were kind of the things that we were looking at in particular in terms of the environment. And then in terms of how that intersects with genes, so that is like a lot of fancy math that goes along in the background. So basically, we can run models that look at whether the genetic contributions to eating disorders are different across levels of our environmental variable. So what I mean by that is that you may think that genes kind of have the same influence no matter what setting or environment that you're in. That's sort of like the genes are destiny idea. But what we actually know is that the environment can shape how much a gene is actually expressed or how much it shows up as behavior. This is sometimes referred to as a diathesis stress type of idea or a gene by environment interaction. So the idea is that for someone who has genetic vulnerabilities for an eating disorder, when they're in a stressful circumstance, like experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage, those genes may come out stronger or more intensely and increase their risk even further than what it would be like if they were in a more advantaged or less stressful environment. So using specialized statistical techniques with our twin model, we can actually look at that and how those genetic contributions are different um, across levels of an environmental factor like disadvantage. So no saliva samples or direct DNA involved, but that would be a really interesting follow-up study to do as well to see if we get the same kinds of results using a different sort of technique to parse apart those genes and environment pieces. I think this is really the first time that I've learned about hearing how the expression of a gene can be determined by the environment that a person is in. I really think that idea is extremely interesting. 
One thing that's stooping me, however, is how do you actually control for the difference between the twins? Or are you looking across twin pairs for differences? Because a lot of these twins are going to be within the same environment that each other is exposed to. So how does that work? That's a good question. So that's one of the advantages of having such a big sample like this. When we have twins from all over Michigan, they're all exposed to kind of different sorts of environments. So if you had twins that were all coming from the same city or the same kind of environmental background, it might be really hard to pull these things apart. But by having a sample that's from all different parts of Michigan and all sorts of backgrounds, it adds a little bit more variety to that environmental piece of it that helps us kind of see these effects. Now, twins living in the same household, they will often have a lot of the same environmental influences, but we actually see that they have a fair amount of unique environmental influences as well. So for many traits, genes are really important for determining what level of that trait you show, like how much disordered eating you show. But the next most important thing is usually those unique environmental factors that a person encounters on their own. Now, that might be some aspect of the culture or the neighborhood that you happen to encounter in a different way from your twin. But those unique experiences in the environment, even within families, are really important for mental health concerns and the kinds of traits that we study. Yeah, that makes sense. I have friends who are twins, and even though they may look the same, they are definitely not the same person. They have different friends, they have different interests, and everything like that, because they're their own person. Now, you said that you surveyed an age of 8 years old to 18 years old. How did your data change maybe across ages? Yeah, so we know that eating disorders tend to come out during puberty. Anyone at any stage of life can experience an eating disorder, but often people experience eating disorders for the first time when they're an adolescent. So about that age range between 12 and, and 18 or so, sometimes a little bit younger, sometimes a little bit older. So we were really interested in looking at puberty and whether that may strengthen or weaken some of the particular effects that we were seeing. Now, puberty and disordered eating and genes is all a bit of a complicated combination. So what we see is that when people get to that point of starting puberty, that's when we start to see a lot of the genes that are associated with disordered eating being expressed. So this is kind of like that gene by environment interaction that I was talking about earlier, but this is actually what we think about like a gene by hormone interaction. So as people are coming onto puberty, those genes that are associated with disordered eating start to be expressed more strongly, and we think that's why eating disorders often emerge during that pubertal period. Now, in our young people who were living in disadvantaged families or neighborhoods, we actually saw a little bit of a different pattern. So often in more advantaged neighborhoods, what you see is those genetic influences don't start to show up until sort of mid-puberty when we often see the emergence of eating disorders. But what we saw with our young people from the less advantaged families and neighborhoods is that they actually had stronger genetic influences earlier in development, so even before they got to puberty. And what we think that might mean is that they're having earlier activation of risk so if you have an underlying vulnerability in your genes to develop an eating disorder and you live in this stressful or disadvantaged circumstance, those risk factors in your genes might be expressed earlier and that could ultimately lead you to experiencing more disordered eating down the line. 
And in fact, that's what we saw. So as young people got older, we especially saw this for boys, their risk of experiencing disordered eating symptoms was greater if they lived in disadvantaged environments. So when we put that all together, basically what we were thinking is that the disadvantaged and stressful environment was increasing expression of genetic risk at these early time points, kind of pre-early puberty. And then later on, having been to ex- exposed to that genetic risk for a longer period of time or from an earlier developmental stage was putting young people at risk of developing more disordered eating symptoms as they moved through puberty. It makes sense. A lot of what you're saying about how individuals that are exposed to more stressful environments could be at risk for those harmful gene expressions to come about at an earlier age. Based on this, are there any sort of intervention practices that could be performed to help mitigate the risks of eating disorders at these prepubescent stages? So I think at this point, the answer is that we don't know because the research hasn't been conducted yet but things that seem like they could potentially be helpful. So since we particularly saw these effects in young people who seem to have underlying genetic risk, one thing that might be helpful is doing early kind of screening and intervention. So often you can tell that someone might have that underlying genetic risk because other people in their family, like a parent or grandparent or an aunt or uncle, may have previously experienced an eating disorder, and then they could pass on those risky genes to the young person who may also be at risk. So by doing early screening, education for families of young people who may have genetic risk and also be living in these disadvantaged environments, we may be able to catch eating disorders earlier and treat them before they become more severe. I think another potential intervention is that if it is the stress of living in a disadvantaged circumstance that's increasing risk, doing things to just generally improve the environment, so improve the neighborhood, improve the availability of resources and healthcare, could potentially go a long way to reducing that stress and then consequently reducing the risk for young people who may be at risk for eating disorders in those circumstances. I used to actually work in a school, and I know that some schools offer resources for students, for example, with mental health. Some of them have like counselors or psychiatrists that the children can talk to. Have you seen correlations with maybe the type of schools that they're in, like a public versus a private school or a school that offers these kind of resources, if that's actually influenced the children? So we actually haven't looked at that question yet, but I think that's a great example of something that could potentially be a resilience factor or something that could buffer against the stress of something like living in a disadvantaged neighborhood. So I think that's a great idea for future research to see if in those young people who have those supports, they have lower levels of disordered eating and it kind of protects them from some of these stress effects that we think that we're seeing. I remember growing up when I was taking a health course in high school that there were periods of time that were dedicated to talking about eating disorders. However, during these discussions, I noticed that common stereotypes were forming whenever we were talking about these eating disorders. How can your research destigmatize some of the stereotypes that currently exist about eating disorders? So I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about eating disorders. Some of it is about who eating disorders affect. So often people will picture someone who's young, who's white, who's thin, and who's advantaged. 
And what we know from the research that's coming out now, my research and some of the other research that's been conducted, is that that's not really an accurate picture of who develops an eating disorder. Actually, we see that anyone can develop an eating disorder across all kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds, all kinds of body types, so you don't have to have a certain body type to have an eating disorder. And we're seeing that people from these more disadvantaged backgrounds are also at increased risk of developing eating disorders. And I think some of this stems from some mistaken ideas about what causes an eating disorder or what eating disorders are about. So some people might have the idea that eating disorders are just about wanting to look a certain way or they're caused by maybe looking at too many fashion magazines or things of that nature. But what we actually know is that these are biologically based conditions. They have a basis in the brain and in genes. And the biggest triggers for them are often things related to stress. So for example, during the recent COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen a big increase in people being referred for eating disorder treatment. We think it's because the stress associated with the pandemic was a triggering factor for a lot of people who were at risk. So I think it's important for people to know those two pieces of it, that pretty much anyone can have an eating disorder, and that eating disorders are these biologically-based illnesses that have a lot of things that come into them, often things related to stress or emotions that are not just about how someone appears on the outside. Well, Megan, I've really enjoyed hearing about your research. It's been super interesting, and I'm happy that you were able to survey so many people and find these correlations. Before we go, though, I was wondering if you had any resources you would like to share with our audience who may be struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is. One of the best resources to find out more information or to seek help by yourself or someone else is the National Eating Disorders Association. So their website is nationaleatingdisorders.org, and there are a lot of resources there related to information on eating disorders, but also resources for finding a treatment provider if it's something that you personally are dealing with or someone that you know is. Thanks for sharing those resources with our audience, Megan. And thank you so much again for joining us to talk about your important research on eating disorders when it comes to individuals within the state of Michigan. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you all today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out SciFiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at SciFiles at Impact89FM.org. We'll catch you next week on the SciFiles. And remember, the truth is in the science.